Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Today is October the 1st of 2015 at approximately 520 in the afternoon. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to give you an understanding of how I am about to share this message. I have not prepared anything except some notes that I took within a half hour of meditation on the Word of God, and I received this particular chapter, as I do all of these chapters, through the casting of lots, believing in the sovereign power of God whose omniscience and omnipresence is attached to every particle of existence. So I know that he can lead me to the right passage of Scripture. And, of course, there are many Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, that confirm this. For example, is it not in Proverbs 16 that it says, The casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. I'll leave it at that. I'm not here to get involved in explaining too much about how I'm about to share. The Word of God says, If any man minister or speak, I should say, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so that is what I will seek to do, is to allow the Spirit of God to speak through me, through the brief notes that I've made in this particular passage. In this particular case, I did not receive this passage Today, I received it on September the 23rd, but there's been a lot of interferences with moving and helping someone, and that's the reason I have not shared messages that are more immediate, usually the same day, and usually within a short time after meditating on them. But I felt that this was an important passage to share from Luke chapter 7. I want to first just briefly read this chapter. So, in the King James Version, I will begin. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. 
And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. He came and touched the briar, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear in all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet is risen among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth through it all Judea, and through it all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. And John, calling on to him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John, Baptist, hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went you out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with a wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yeah, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath a devil. 
The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man, and a wine-biber, and a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. In this passage of scripture, I want to point out the underlying theme. And that is the difference between genuine faith in God and counterfeit faith, and how genuine faith comes out of the genuine fear of God and also results in wisdom. There are many that nowadays emphasize the importance of having faith and of claiming and believing for things to come forth. But there is a counterfeit faith that is really a faith out of one's own self-sufficiency that is not a genuine faith in God. The word for faith in the New Testament is the word pistis, which has the understanding of persuasion, moral persuasion in who God is. 
Also, the Old Testament word for faith comes from the word amen. That's one of the words. But it also has basically the same understanding. It is a persuasion in who God is that is immovable and can be illustrated by a plant whose roots refuse to be moved even when the top of the plant is totally destroyed by the forces of nature or by someone chopping it off. But out of that root springs forth again the plant to become all the more stronger and resilient over time. Genuine faith in God comes out of the secret of a reciprocative, deep heart-abiding fellowship with God. That's how it grows, but it comes out of the genuine fear of God. In the example of the centurion in the first part of Luke 7, verses 1 to 10, Christ marvels at the greatness of the centurion's faith. Why is that so? Because the centurion had such a great reverence for Jesus Christ. that he considered himself unworthy to have Christ come and pray for the centurion's servant to be healed. He believed just like he was a soldier and commanded his man to be doing various things, that he was a man under authority and that they were not to question his authority, but to do those things out of reverence for who he stood for and who he was. So likewise, he should have the same perception towards Christ, which obviously he had. And so he says he's not worthy but just say the word only. So this faith didn't require someone to come and lay hands on him. We've seen many of these meetings where they have everyone line up to get prayed by one individual. Is that wrong? No. God uses that, obviously. But I say unto you that in these last days, he wants the body of Christ to be so conscious of the headship of Christ in the midst of the body and to have such reverence towards Christ that they do not need to be fixated on any particular individual, but only in Christ, for the power of Christ to come forth with virtue and healing. When you really perceive someone with your heart as precious, you do not treat them in a light way, but with great reverence and 
in that there is great humility before that person and great respect. It is the right heart reception towards God that brings the heart response of faith that then results in the right choices of the heart, which is wisdom. Was it wisdom for the centurion to make this choice? Certainly it was. It meant that Christ could minister all the more effectively by not having to be at a particular location since there was the receptivity of faith as a conduit for the release of that power because that faith was at a level that it was conductive in such a way that it did not need identity and a personality in person requiring touch. Let me give you a deep understanding of the meaning of the word wisdom. When we look at the word wisdom in the word of God, if I go to the original symbolic Hebrew letters for that word, the root word is hach, ha. It's Chachm. The first letter is the symbol of a tent wall, which is a picture of three pillars, like a ladder sideways. The next symbol is the symbol of a receptive hand, and the last symbol is the symbol of waves representing water. Wisdom First, must acknowledge separation, the holiness of God. The wall represents that which is constructive, that which separates. In a tent, a wall separates into two rooms. This speaks of the holiness of God. Because the holiness of God will not tolerate corruption. What is the holiness of God? It is the integrity of God's love that is so pure that it will not tolerate the slightest word, thought, or deed, or state of attitude and being that is contrary to God's love. God's love, agape love, is a quality that's far more than a feeling, it is choice, free volitional choice that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment or gratification. And such a state of being in God, who is love, is innate as a blazing fire of judgment to consume all that is contrary to love. Because all that is contrary to love has corruption in it. Because it chooses less than the highest lasting good. 
It is the holiness of God that is the defensive aspect of God's love. This love that is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary. And holiness speaks of God cutting off all corruption, of the fact that God's love in its integrity requires judgment against all that is contrary to love. It is out of recognizing the absolute purity of God's love in its integrity that requires judgment in our lives personally and in this world that there is the perception of wholeness in God out of which issues beauty and out of which issues then glory. You see, the holiness of God guards against all corruption, and it is corruption that obviously lacks wholeness because it has a destructive principle like a black hole in outer space that is sucking everything in towards self in a way that is destructive. What is opposite of the black hole is a completeness and a wholeness without corruption, which can only be found in God himself. For it says in the word of God that only in him is immortality and life eternal. Because God's love is pure, so pure, that its integrity requires judgment. God's love is the holiness of God. But we so easily become offended at the holiness of God because we see the consequences of it in this world in suffering. The suffering of all those around us, the suffering in our own lives. And we lose sight of the consequences in this universe having their foundation in the holiness of God, which holds wholeness and is the very source of beauty, ultimate beauty and glory that can go on forever and ever and enlarge forever and ever in greater expressions of that love and creativity. When we really perceive who God is and his holiness, we recognize that only God could possibly contain unlimited life and power that would be everlasting and ever enlarging without corruption. It is because it is without corruption due to the holiness of God that there is an immovable foundation of reality from which can spring creativity that is ultimate, that is everlasting and ever enlarging. And so when we perceive God and the greatness of this authority of, and power is seated in an ultimate moral purity of love, it is then that we cannot help but be humbled under the mighty hand of God and utter awe of who he is 
not only in the greatness of his power, but all the more so in the greatness of the purity of his love that can be transcendent. in such incredible goodness. For goodness is the containing of unlimited life and power in a direction that is ever constructive without corruption, that is ever enlarging, therefore, without corruption. And when we recognize the goodness of God that issues out of the holiness of God, that contains the beauty of God and contains the very source of wholeness for our own being, that can undo the deceptions of corruption in us that are like a black hole that continually causes us to make decisions that are in a path that is destructive and is destructive unto our own lives. When we recognize the holiness of God instead of being offended at the consequences of his chastisement in our own lives and in this world of those that have rebelled against him, then we can recognize that since God is so good, he must be merciful. And so there's a receptivity that comes into the heart and the recognition that God is able to show mercy, which is the second symbol in wisdom, that is, of a receptive hand. It is a receptive hand towards the holiness of God, towards who God is in the integrity of his love, in required judgment. And it is when we are receptive towards the integrity of who God is that there is a moral persuasion in us in who God is that births life, which is the third symbol in wisdom, which is water, which is representative of life. Of course, this water represents many aspects of the being of God. Water can be still and very clear and very even, like a straight line very reflective. It is filled with life. But if the wind of our soul and of our spirit rebels against God upon that water, it becomes powerful and destructive like waves that can sink the ship of our life that is held in this world in the hands of God. Because when we blow against the waters of the holiness of God that contains life, there is the repercussions of those destructive waves of consequences due to sowing those things that are contrary to life, which is rooted in the holiness of God. So now we come back to the passage in Luke chapter 7, and we see in the centurion a persuasion in who God is that recognizes the preciousness of God, his authority, his holiness, and is in humility before God. That brings a persuasion in his heart, which is faith. A persuasion in who God is. A moral persuasion that can trust God because he recognizes God as ultimately trustworthy. Because he's rightly recognizing who God is in the being of his holiness from which springs forth goodness and ultimately mercy that is able to assure forgiveness 
and therefore destiny to one's life. If God was not able to forgive and assure destiny to one's life, how could they possibly trust in God? But the recognition of the goodness of God that brings the conclusion of the recognition that God is merciful comes out of first the recognition and reception, the right reception of heart to the holiness of God and its consequences and required judgment. This is what births genuine faith. It is a deep turning in the heart to choose to recognize God for who God truly is. In these two aspects, the holiness of God, which is the defensive aspect of the love of God, from which springs forth the mercy and grace of God to those that repent and receive his forgiveness and grace. And yes, I don't have time to go in right now and explain how this was the right perception that people had from the very time of Adam and Eve. They experienced the genuine experience of rebirth in their hearts and were born again of the Spirit from the time of Adam and Eve. It is clear that Nicodemus should have known what Christ meant by being born again of the Spirit even before he died on the cross. It is clear that people enter into a deep and intimate relationship with God from the very beginning. We have Enoch, who walked so close with God that he was translated. We have Abraham, who had a close and intimate relationship with God, whom the Apostle Paul clearly describes as having known and received the good news of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news that God is holy and therefore can be trusted and is ultimate, the ultimate source of trustworthiness with unlimited life and power. It is the good news out of that that God therefore is good and therefore is able to provide mercy and forgiveness. And that has been the message that has been preached from the beginning of time, that there is one God, only one God, and that he has provided a way to assure forgiveness and destiny to all those that repent and receive his provision of mercy. Well, how in the world did they do that before Christ died on the cross? Well, we know from the time of Adam and Eve that they were required to offer such as an innocent lamb and lay their hands on the head of the lamb, which was a sin of their sins being transferred onto the lamb. But we know there are many verses throughout the scripture that make it clear that they recognize that the source of forgiveness was not in the sacrifice, but was in God himself. I don't have time to go to the verses, but there are many verses in the Old Testament, a good number of them that point this out. And that recognize that the animal sacrifice could never atone for our soul. Unfortunately, in this message, I don't have time to find those exact passages. I might be able to try right now, if I have something open, to just give some of those verses to you. So I'm going to just try quickly to see if I can find them here. And so I'm just looking quickly here. 
to see if I can find those verses. Whether I will find them, I do not know. Um, there is some here I have. It says in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. It is God that blots out the transgression. It says in Psalms 130, verse 4, But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So forgiveness is with God. It says in Daniel 9, 9, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses though we have rebelled against him. There are other verses which I will point out to you, but those are just some. It mentions in the scripture And I can't find this particular scripture I wanted to show you, so I'll leave it at that for this time. But what I am pointing out here is that this centurion recognized the mercy of God. And there was the understanding that in God's being from the beginning of time, there was not merely the capacity out of his holiness without violating the integrity of his love, that is, that is his holiness, that he had the capacity to show mercy and provide forgiveness. But there was the reality that, as it were, he was already a perfect atoning sacrifice in the sense that there was within his being the very reality, as if he had already done it. Now, did most of these people comprehend that? Probably not. It was probably more a thing of the heart that was subconscious. But that was what was going on in the recognition of the heart, even if it was subconscious, was that within God there was such a high moral capacity of love that he could actually become a perfect atoning sacrifice and therefore had within his being without violating the integrity of his love, the capacity, not only is a capacity, but the reality, as if it had already happened, to forgive. Even the Pharisees in the time of Christ recognized that there had to be two messiahs, they believed, one that was a suffering messiah for atonement. It says somewhere, I believe it is in Isaiah, I may be wrong, even if I give the fruit of my body, it will not atone for my soul. That is, even if I give my children as a sacrifice, it will not atone for my soul. And it points out that it's not within animals because they don't represent the whole being of man. They can only represent the body. And so there's the recognition, as it says in Hebrews, they recognize that the animals could only cleanse the body but they could not cleanse the soul and the spirit. But that allowed for God's presence to dwell with them, with their soul and spirit. And I could go into great detail in describing these things, but it would take me more off track on the issue I want to emphasize in this passage. I could go in and explain how they were actually born again of the spirit, 
from the time of Adam and Eve. It says, for he, you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. That was what Christ said before he died on the cross. The knowing of who God is, is because of being born of the Spirit, because the Spirit of God is dwelling with our soul and spirit, which has responded into a state of faith like a clenched fist opening up to an open hand, a state of selfless trust, which the Spirit of God then comes to abide with like another open hand so that that hand cannot close. There you have the new divine nature described in 1 John 1, where it says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So faith is a state of being where the hand opens up and surrender to the recognition of who God is, into which then can come the indwelling of the Spirit of God before Christ, dwelling with our soul and spirit, holding our soul and spirit in a state of faith that will not clench back into a fist but is now a new divine nature. And after Christ also is not merely dwelling with our soul and spirit, but indwelling. And thus, when Christ died on the cross, there was the full cleansing of the soul and the spirit, which allowed that indwelling and allowed access into the Holy of Holies. But there was always the dwelling with God from the time of the beginning. And the gospel is described in Revelations chapter 14 as the everlasting gospel that will be preached in the last days, which is to fear God and to give glory to him and to worship him who made all things. The everlasting gospel is everlasting from the very eternity and infinite past in God because it's always been in his being that he, as the Father, is ultimately trustworthy because he is not only holy, but out of which springs the integrity and the fullness of love in what is ultimately trustworthy, which is the power to assure mercy without contradicting the integrity of his love. There's been that moral persuasion. And the centurion was persuaded and had the humility out of which issued this faith that Christ marveled at, that was filled with such wisdom. For such faith bears wisdom. It is genuine faith. In fact, Peter came to acknowledge in the book of Acts the and concluded that those that genuinely fear God are accepted of God. And the reason they're accepted of God is that anyone that enters in to the genuine fear of God will enter into a genuine rebirth experience so that they are changed in their inner being and are truly born again of the Spirit. It involves the deep turning of the heart and recognition of who God is, not a mere intellectual ascent. In this passage in Luke chapter 7, we have the next scene, which is the woman in the city of Nain. And Nain means affliction, and it also means beauty. And often in our lives as believers, God will allow affliction. so that we 
let go of the things of this life that we tend to so easily cling to that rob us from our identity and relationship with God. And so, in our growth as those that have come into the genuine fear of God and been born again of the Spirit into genuine faith and persuasion in who God is, there are those times when the storms and the winds of life may blow on our vessel, and may we and we may be fearful and look at the waves more than reverencing God. But God is wanting us to come to the place that even if we are totally like a plant that's been broken of any outward appearance of blessing. We are still in moral persuasion of who God is, knowing that he brings resurrection out of every contradiction, for he is the creator that is very creative, and the greater the contradiction, the greater the creativity, the greater the resurrection. The issue that we need to learn in this event that happened in the city of Naan, meaning affliction and beauty. Here is a woman that lost the dearest thing in her life, her son, and really lost her living with it because only her son could help her and support her. And of course, who wouldn't weep? And so Christ says to her, don't weep, brothers and sisters, are you weeping? Because you don't understand why God's allowing so many contradictions in your life. Are you one that is barren? The word of God says that you are, in Isaiah 54, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, for the one that has no child has more than the married wife. Did not Hannah weep with such deep contrition in the midst of the contradiction of not having a son, that she was misunderstood even by the body of even by the leadership of the body of Christ in the church at that time. But the Lord said to her, even as the priest said to the woman that he thought was drunk, which was Hannah, weep not. Through the contradiction and the trials, the desire in her heart was purified so that she offered Samuel to God. And in this passage of scripture here, The word of God is revealing that as she heeded the Lord's voice to stop weeping, that they stood still with that man so that Christ could say to the young man, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And God is saying to his people at this time, I want you to come into a place where you will not panic in the trials that are about to come upon the earth, that are about to come upon your own life, or maybe in your life now. I want you to learn to calm down, to not weep, to trust me, to be still and know that I am God. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says, 
Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Verse 2 says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. We need to learn to pull back our own presumptions before God of self-initiation and become still so that we can become an awe of who God is and enter into that heart-reciprocative relationship with him out of the awe of who he is and the beauty of his holiness. So that we say with King David, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. To behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life, and to inquire in his temple. And it's when we learn to abide in the temple of God's presence out of the fear of God that brings that genuine persuasion of faith that his presence comes down and tabernacles with us individually and corporately when there is the same right heart reciprocation out of persuasion of who God is in the, out of the fear of God. The other verse that is significant is found in Isaiah 37 that says, For the Egyptian shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. Just like this man in the town of Nain that was being carried, the briar stood still. And it was when they stood still that the Lord said, I say unto thee, arise. And when we learn to calm ourselves down and to trust God instead of trying to work things out on our own, when we learn that our strength is to be still before God out of learning to wait on him, that our strength is renewed with resurrection life that will conquer every trial and contradiction and will cause us to be more than conquerors through him that loved us so that all things we will triumph in him whether it is by death or by life we will be persuaded that that life of christ will conquer for greater is he that is in us than in he that is in the world i could go on and preach this message and i can will probably go on to the next section of this passage which is from verse is 19 to 35 Here we have the description of John the Baptist, who himself even doubted at times because of the trials that God was allowing in his life where he was thrown into prison. And what did Christ say of John the Baptist? That he was the greatest among prophets. And yet John the Baptist did no miracle, but he was greatly anointed with power to preach the word of God so that multitudes came to repentance. Why was there such a powerful anointing on John the Baptist? The secret lies in Hebrews in the verse that says, because you have hated unrighteousness and loved righteousness, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with an oil of gladness above thy fellows. Of course, this is speaking of Christ. So it is a strong conformity to God who hates unrighteousness and loves righteousness. The hating of unrighteousness, speaking of the integrity of God's love, that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to his love. 
and the loving of righteousness, speaking of the creative, expressive love that comes out of that persuasion to show such great mercy and love. And in the case of John the Baptist, he was powerfully anointed because out of his preaching came powerful anointing because there was such a conformity to who God was in the integrity of his love and in the creativity of his love ultimately expressed in his power to assure forgiveness and destiny to the repentant that receive God for who he truly is. But if there has not been that genuine work where the hardness in our heart like a clenched fist before God is broken open to the light of the being of who God is to sprout forth in a new nature that is ever growing in faith. Then we will be like the Pharisees who rejected the message of John the Baptist by refusing to be baptized by him. And Christ describes this with a key verse in this passage. He describes those that refused to be baptized by him, the Pharisees and the lawyers. And he says it this way, Verse 31, whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, we have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and ye say ye hath a devil. The son of man is come eating and drinking and ye see be Say, behold, a gluttonous man and a winebagger, a friend of publicans and sinners. And here's the key verse. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Those that have the wisdom of God are those that have come out of the fear of God into rebirth of a new nature, which is a persuasion of faith that is held open in selfless trust to God and does not have confidence in oneself and have a counterfeit faith, but is persuaded in who God is through every contradiction so that they can see through the outward appearance to what is far deeper because they have have the eye of their heart open to who God is. To see who God is from the eye of their heart allows them to see into the heart of others and to, and to see beyond the outward of mere understanding and judgment like the Pharisees and to be reciprocated to God, who in this case, speaking through the John the Baptist, they received the baptism of repentance to receive the mercy of God and his forgiveness. 
Then we go on to the next portion here, which is the last portion, verses 36 to 50. And here we have Christ being invited to the Pharisee's house. And a woman coming and washing his feet with the tears of her hair and anointing his feet. And the Pharisee judging according to outward appearance, this woman saying in his heart, if Christ had discernment, he would know that this woman's a sinner. What is he doing letting her do this to him? And of course, Christ points out, he says, you know, which one is going to appreciate and love the most? The one that was forgiven five? Pence or the one 500? We know from this passage, Christ points out those. He says this, Wherefore I say unto you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. When we recognize the greatness of God's mercy to us, and how much he's forgiven us. When we've really had that persuasion where our heart has been open to who God is, because there's been a deep turning in our heart that has broken that veil, because we've turned and we've cried out and said, God, be merciful to me. If you have a problem with forgiving others, where you cannot receive them as Christ received them, then maybe you've not had a deep breaking in your heart or a deep turning in your heart to recognize and receive the holiness of God out of which also you can recognize and receive the greatness of God's mercy to you. When you realize out of praying to God and turning to God from the depths of your being and calling upon him the passage that says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Then shortly thereafter says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There has to be a deep calling from the depths of our being upon God, recognizing in the case of a person that claims to be a believer and cannot forgive, God have mercy upon me that the condition of my heart is such that I do not have the grace to forgive this person. Cry out to him for mercy. Recognize your need for his mercy and his grace. And then when you cry out like that, God will show you the greatness of his mercy to you and you will be able to show mercy to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe there should be foot washing ceremonies. People I've heard say, oh, I forgive this brother and sister, but I can't trust them. Well, you need to be able to love them when you've really forgiven them. You receive them. You don't reject them and evade them. You come to a place where you are willing to wash their feet. Yes, there's all those faults that are offensive to you and them. But can you see that their heart is for God, that they love God? Can you be willing to forgive them as Christ has forgiven you? If you cannot, your heart is hard. 
You love the world. You're alive to things in the world that have caused a hardness so that you've lost receptivity out of the fear of God, of a genuine faith that can be reciprocative in fellowship to receive his mercy and his love and impart it to others. God is calling the body of Christ to repent of the idolatry of loving the world, the gods of amusement, of pleasure, of idleness. We're to redeem the time for the days are evil. How is it that in churches the leadership condones those things that are ungodly, encourages them by talking about the hockey game and all these other things that are a stumbling block to so many and take them away and rob them from a life of prayer and seeking God and rob them from redeeming the time. God is calling the leadership to repent of allowing a hardness to collect in the people of God that is an adultery towards the world, that causes an adultery in relationships of husbands and wives, that causes divorce. He's calling the body of Christ to start their services on their faces and on their knees in utter awe of who God is, to humble themselves before him. If the leadership would just start the church service as a prayer meeting instead of having pre-services prayer meetings and start his house to be a house of prayer. So many complain that pre-service prayer meetings have so few people coming. Make your service a place of meeting with God till we're more conscious of him and his headship in our midst than the program or the message that's about to be spoken. And then the Spirit of God will move on the body with the gifts of the Spirit and the pastor will have his message come in anointing and it will be confirmed by the prophetic utterances that come forth independent of knowing what he's to speak on, independent of knowing one another and what they are going to say that is confirmed by the Spirit of God of the same word and theme. Oh, I could go on talking for a long time. God is calling denominations to repent that have made an idol out of truths and have enshrined a hierarchy around those truths that has made them insensitive to the headship of Christ. They are to repent of being denominational and as a denomination come out of denominationalism to receive your brothers and sisters in Christ that may not see things the same exactly as you do. Come forth and be his bride that is without spot or wrinkle, that is without divisiveness, that is without a mold of man in a form of worship or whatever that develops and that belittles those that do not enter into it, whether it's these people in counterfeit revival that are always wanting to laugh and giggle but do not know what it is to mourn before God and to reap and to rend their hearts. Whatever it is, May the body of Christ repent. That doesn't negate joy. Deep repentance and contrition and reverence births deep joy and deep adulation and liberty in worship before God and in the gifts of the Spirit towards one another. Oh, I will leave this message at this point in time and say that God is calling his bride to come forth in true repentance and to return back to the genuine fear of God that they may enter into pure faith and into the wisdom 
that comes out of that persuasion of faith. God bless. Pray for me. I need financial support. And I am going to be praying and believing God to do a miracle, to put me in a position where I can not only be out of debt, but also in a position where there can be resources to bring restoration to the body of Christ in places and centers of worship that will become fully community, that will become his house of prayer and become community in every sense of the world to be a city in the midst of a city, a community in the midst of a community in these last days that we may turn this nation back to God, whichever nation you're in, whether it's the United States or where I live here in Canada or wherever you are around the world, the call that is going forth at this time is to repent and to turn back to the genuine fear of God and to repent of not allowing the headship of Christ to come fully over your local body and to repent of not letting his house be a house of prayer and to repent of loving the world. May God bless you until I share again. And I hope to get the sharing up and happening a lot more now that I've helped some poor person that doesn't have a lot of money move that's taken up a lot of my time and I still am helping them with things because of the situations in their life. God bless you.